the last few weeks, we've been working through Paul's theology of gifts as he gives it to us in Ephesians chapter 4. And if I could summarize that theology, it is relatively simple, beginning with the reality that Christ gives gifts to those in the church. That is to say, Christ gives gifts to every believer. If you are here this evening, reconciled to God through Christ, He has given to you as an expression of His work on the cross, a gift. Our gifts are different. We don't all receive the same gift, and we receive them in different measure. And that's intentional because Christ intends that our gifts would be used as a means of bringing about unity within the local church. Gifts are never intended to be a means that bring division. They are, they are designed to bring us together as we recognize our need of one another. Look around you and understand that no one man or woman is suitably gifted so as to do all of the work that lies before us. Rather, we have been gifted in different ways and in different measures so that we depend on one another to accomplish the work of the ministry. Beyond that, Paul teaches us, as you'll remember, that it is the ministry of the Word that activates believers you get yourself under the ministry of the Word within the local church. It is the safest place to be. As you live your life under the ministry of the Word, you are protected from being tossed around by every wind and wave of false doctrine. And the Word then, in your life, activates you to serve. And of course, we remember Ephesians chapter 4, verse 12, it is the saints who do the work of the ministry. So the word preached activates the saints to do the work of the ministry. And when a local church is behaving in this manner, each believer using their gift as they have received it from Christ, there is a maturing of that body. That local church now begins to grow into the fullness of Christ. Christ is our head, and we are to grow up into Him. The church is to be reflective of His maturity. He lacks nothing, and we are striving to reflect Him in our maturity, and it comes about through our ministry to one another. And the end product, as a local church grows up into their head who is Christ, is that we become a body of believers who are defined by love. Defined by love for our Savior and love for one another. That is the theology of gifts that Paul gives us in Ephesians 4 that we've been thinking through for the last few weeks there are other places in the New Testament you can turn to think through the notion of gifting within the life of a believer and in any local church. But Ephesians 4 is a good place to begin. Now, if you have yet to respond 
to that theology that we have been studying, your response is easy. Number one, you get yourself under that word. The most obvious implication from Paul's teaching in Ephesians 4 about gifts is that you need to situate yourself under the ministry of the word. When the word is taught, when the word is preached, ensure that you're there. And secondly, you start serving. If you're here, if you're a member, and you've yet to start serving, now's the time. The Word is leading you to do that. It is your proper role within this church is to serve one another as you are able. With that now in view, Paul continues into verse 17 And he returns here to his opening exhortation of the chapter to walk in a manner worthy. So as you see in verse 17, Paul says he testifies in the Lord that we are to no longer walk as the Gentiles do. He is here picking up on his opening exhortation all the way back in verse 1 of this chapter. I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. You remember when we were all the way back there, we understood that the verb to walk is being used metaphorically to represent our whole lives. And Paul encourages and exhorts the Christians in Ephesus to live their lives in a manner that is worthy of their calling. In verse 17, he's picking up on that thought. And he's stating, in essence, the same truth. He's giving the exhortation another time, albeit this time framing it negatively. I testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. And what Paul then does is make an ever so important connection for us to observe. A connection between our walking and our thinking. Verse 1, don't walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds. And it's on this simple relationship between living, doing, acting, walking, and thinking that will give most of our attention this evening. It is one of the most important relationships to which Scripture testifies specifically that your actions, your walk, your life is only ever a product of, first and foremost, your mind. What you do with your hands and your feet is always an outworking of what you have done with your thoughts. And Paul's desire is that we would live lives that don't look like the unbelievers, but we would live lives that are reflective of the calling that we have received, and it begins with your mind. So may God teach us through his word what it is to think like a Christian. Now Paul gives us in the first few verses of this section what that unregenerate mind looks like. He says in verse 17, I say and testify in the Lord. Notice just how emphatic Paul is being. 
I say and I testify. I tell you and I insist. And he does this in the Lord. He's invoking, as it were, his apostolic authority. I command you to do what? To no longer walk as the Gentiles do. The word Gentile there is used not as a cultural term, as it has been elsewhere in the letter. Chapters 2 and 3 of Ephesians, over and over, Paul rehearses the wonderful truth of Jew and Gentile now being together, one man in Christ. In chapter 4, verse 17, as he uses that word Gentile, he doesn't use it culturally, but spiritually to speak about the unbeliever, the one who remains outside of Christ. Don't live your life like that, he says. Your life is to look different. Your life is to look like a believer. Now, why is Paul so emphatic, so insistent on this point? Why does he return to it here in verse 17 and to do so with such emphasis? And the answer simply is that to walk in a manner that is like an unbeliever is to greatly dishonor the gospel. Think again about chapter 4, verse 1. I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you have been called. Therefore, by inference, to walk in a manner like an unbeliever, like a Gentile, does a great disservice to the gospel. Whether you like it or not, if you indeed are a Christian, people are watching you and forming a commentary on the Christian faith and on Jesus himself by the way in which you live. You really don't have any say in that. It is a fact. Insomuch as you have made your faith known, people interpret the Bible, whatever knowledge they have of it. They form their conclusions as to the validity of the claims of Christianity and they even make their decisions of what they make of Christ based on the way you are living your life. Therefore, to walk in a manner that is not worthy of the calling you have received, that is to say, to walk in a manner that is like a Gentile, an unbeliever, is to do a great disservice to the gospel. Not only that, it is to do a great disservice to your brothers and sisters in Christ. Think about, again, from 4.1, how the flow of the argument continues. For the next dozen verses or so, Paul speaks about our unity in the body together. That's what prompted his whole discussion of gifts. And so if you're not walking in a manner that is worthy of the calling you have received... You're dishonoring your brothers and sisters in Christ. It wasn't that long ago that I read a letter written by a pastor who had disqualified himself through an extramarital relationship. I praise God that he was repentant. He was fully acknowledging of the gravity of his sin and his theology, at least in the letter, was right insomuch as he said, I've dishonored the gospel and I've dishonored my church. That is what it means to walk 
like an unbeliever. Now understand, Christians don't intentionally set out to do so. People don't show up one day, regenerate, having received the gift of the new birth, having desires to honor Christ, and all of a sudden say, you know what, this week I'm going to walk like an unbeliever. People don't decide out of nowhere, I think now I'm going to spend some time walking like a Gentile. So the question comes about how on earth might it happen that those who have been born again might lead a life that looks somewhat synonymous with an unbeliever? And the answer is it all begins with the mind. The second half of verse 17, do not walk like the Gentiles do in the futility of their mind. It all begins with your thought life. Again, this is one of the most vital connections for us to understand to which the Bible attests all the way through. Not simply here in Ephesians 14, we could easily spend the whole evening searching the Scriptures to see how time and time and time again God's Word shows us that what we do with our hands and our feet is only ever a product of what we have first done with our mind. What you say and what you do is an outworking of what you have first thought. And the imperative is clear. Jesus himself says in Matthew 22, you are to love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, and mind. You are to love God with all of your mind. Think even back to last Sunday evening as we looked at that dark period in Israel's history in Judges 19. Remember how the chapter concluded. Consider these things. The command in God's word to all who would read it is to think upon these realities. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, Paul says, Consider these things, I trust the Lord will give you understanding. He wants for Timothy to shepherd the church well. He gives so many practical instructions in that pastoral epistle, but he says first and foremost, think upon these realities. Not to mention the countless verses within Proverbs that etch a very clear connection between the way in which you live your life and the what, the what that you do with your thoughts. How is it that a Christian could possibly walk in a manner similar to the way the Gentiles do? It is because first, they have thought like an unbeliever. They have allowed themselves to pursue patterns of thinking that are akin to someone who does not know Jesus Christ. And Paul goes on to expand upon that simple connection in verse 18. They, the Gentiles, are darkened in their understanding. Which is to say that the futility of their minds, the emptiness of their minds is represented as they do not perceive the world the way that God perceives it. 
They look around and their situations that confront them. They do not reason through those situations in a way that accords with the logic and the arguments of Scripture. Or to put it more plainly, the unbeliever does not have a biblical worldview. They're darkened in their understanding with the resultant implication, of course, that they are alienated from the life of God. They are separate from God because of the way in which they think. It really is not an overstatement to say what you do with your thoughts will determine where you spend eternity. The unbeliever is darkened in his understanding and knows nothing of communion with God as a result. Because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their heart. Notice at the end there of verse 18 how Paul makes plain everybody is culpable for such thinking. Everybody bears responsibility for their thought life. The Gentiles, the unbelievers, approach the truths of the gospel and of scripture with a hard heart. They are not soft, they are not submissive, they are not willing to get themselves under the word. And this hardness of heart is what leads to the darkness in their understanding. Now certainly there are differences between the believer and the unbeliever. Remember here, Paul is drawing something of a comparison as he's saying to the believers in Ephesus, don't live this way, don't think this way. And so we might say, just by way of example, those who are regenerate, born again in Christ can never be fundamentally, fully, absolutely alienated from God. The truth of the gospel is that God has brought you together in a relationship with Him to be enjoyed forever. But at the same time, we need to take seriously the effect of our thought life on our relationship with the Godhead. Have you ever considered that what you do with your mind affects the health of your communion with God? That a believer, by pursuing patterns of thought that do not accord with Scripture, but are more representative of the unregenerate mind, pursues a path wherein we do not enjoy fullness of communion with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That you are pursuing a pattern of thinking that relationally distorts the quality of your communion with God, I see unbiblical patterns of thought being pursued by Christians all the time. Unbiblical patterns of thought pursued by Christians all of the time. Christians thinking about money and their finances in a way that does not Honor God that is in no way informed by what the Bible has to say about our treasure. Christians pursuing their relationships in a way that does not honor the Lord is not representative of what the Bible teaches about our relationships. That is not informed by Scripture's teaching. 
Christians who don't think rightly about what it is to forgive one another when we've been wronged within the church, employing an entirely secular worldview when things get tough relationally within the church. Christians thinking about the church in a way that is by no means Christian is not reflective of Scripture's teaching on the church. Even to the point where Christians think about salvation and the role of grace in a way that is more representative of an unbelieving mind. Our mind gives rise to our actions and Christians can regularly think like unbelievers. When I counsel with people, I enter into the situation with the assumption that we're here, we're getting together, at least in part because somewhere along the line, the one coming for counsel has embraced a lie and believed it to be true. Whatever is the practicalities of the situation that brings us together, Somewhere along the line, there is a lie that has been ministered to their heart and they've embraced it to be true. They've started to think in that area like an unbeliever. And then their unbelieving mind, as they pursue those thoughts which are not biblical, leads them down a path of action that doesn't honor the Lord. And it only ever brings Misery. Why are so Christians often so pray, prone to think in this way? In a way that is reflective of an unbelieving mind. In part is because we are so influenced by the world around us. Christians can so readily think like unbelievers because we are influenced by the world around us. Add to that the spirit of anti-intellectualism that is pervasive in the church today. This lie that somehow if you start to wrestle with the deep things of Scripture and really try to pursue an understanding of God, that will suck your joy out of worship. Nothing could be further from the truth. Understand that rigorous study will only ever elevate your worship. The more you get to know God, the more pleasure you will have as you approach Him. But there is a spirit of anti-intellectualism that is pervasive in the church today. And add to that the reality, much as we thought about this morning with our motives in serving Add to that the reality that our thoughts are seldom the subject of accountability. I am genuinely grateful when people come and ask me questions that seek to hold me accountable. Don't ever think that your pastor is beyond these kind of questions. I am genuinely grateful when someone comes to me and says, how's your marriage? How's your Bible reading? How's your prayer life? 
Those questions are asked too rarely of those in positions of ministry leadership. You need to hold people accountable. I don't know the last time I was asked, how's your thought life? We don't tend to make this an area of interest as we seek to sharpen one another. What do you set your mind upon? Would you be willing to be vulnerable with me and share with me where your thoughts most readily go? In the quiet moments when nothing is invading, coming into your immediate periphery, where does your mind choose to go? Where does it settle? And so because of the influence of the world around us, because of this spirit of anti-intellectualism, and because our thoughts are so rarely the subject of accountability, we can very quickly fail in the way in which we think. How do you think like a Christian? First of all, you need to be careful Of what you take in. How do you think like a Christian? Number one, be careful of what you take in. The songs that we sing to our children are so often the best ones. Be careful, little eyes, what you see. Sing that to yourself, not only your children, and take hold of that truth. Because you are not above the reality of influence. Don't ever believe that you are immune to the reality of influence. If you saturate your mind enough in a particular way of thinking, you will begin to seize it as your own. You understand just how powerful your mind is. Even the simplest person is incredibly powerful as it relates to their thought life. And if you linger on something for long enough, soon you will start to believe it to be true. If you keep taking in what the world has to offer, you will be influenced. You are not immune to it. And so you need to be careful of what you take in. How do you think like a Christian? Secondly, you have to engage with this book in a rigorous manner. I'm not simply saying that you need to open it and read a few verses each day so as to check a box and say, I read my Bible today. It has to be more than that. If you're a Christian, You're a student. You may not consider yourself one. God does. He expects you to be studying His Word. Your whole life long. Open this book and pursue rigorous study of it. Give particular attention to the arguments, the logic that is construed throughout the Bible. This is why Bible memorization is such a wonderful discipline. I don't know about you. When I set my mind to memorize, internalize words on the page, it takes me forever. 
I have to go over those few verses again and again and again and again before I have any hope of them being in there and me being able to recite them without looking at the words on the page. And that very process is so often the means that God uses to show me not simply the words that are on the page, but the flow of the argument. Now, through hard work, I see finally the logic of the passage. I have grasped the argument of the text. You have to pursue the Bible on that kind of level so as to start to change the way in which you think about the world around you. And as you grasp the arguments of the text, the third step, as you go out into the world and engage with all that God has placed before you, you are committed to submit everything you see under the argument that you have now internalized. You see how this works. It starts in your room, all by yourself, you, the Bible, and the grace of God. You are careful of what you are taking in, but certainly you are studying this text. And as God gives you grace to understand the flow of thought, you then leave your home, you go into the world, and everything that is presented before you, you bring under what you have learned in God's Word. It is not the other way around. You allow His Word to inform your estimation of the world around you. That is what it means to have a biblical worldview. So for example... You read that the psalmist says, the Lord is my refuge and my strength. That's an argument. It's a biblical argument. The Lord is my refuge and my strength. And as I've said to you many times, you take hold of that. You internalize it. You determine by God's grace to make that your confession. And then you go out into the world and all of a sudden... There are many assaults on you that will tell you that you are not safe, but there is a safe place to go. Many, many times people who are seeking to build a business, make a profit, will tell you you're not safe, but here's an option. And you have to look at that through the lens that you have established through God's Word. The Lord is my refuge and my strength. I don't need to be anxious. You're telling me I need to be anxious. I don't. Because the Lord is my refuge and my strength. I am safe in Him. Now, it requires wisdom to know whether you're going to take out that insurance policy. It's not necessarily that you'll say no. You need to think through that and pray, but you will not be anxious. Because the Lord is my refuge and strength. And whatever happens, he will be my ultimate security. The steadfast love of the Lord is better than life. I have such a hard time believing that. The steadfast love of the Lord is better than life. God, you've given me so many good things. I enjoy so many good things. And the argument of the text is that the steadfast love of the Lord is better than these things. So I'm going to take the argument and by God's grace, make it my own. 
So now I leave my study and go out into the world. And again, there are many claims being made on my time and my resources, often in the name of pleasure. You need this and you need this. And I can say I don't need this because the steadfast love of the Lord is better than life. I have a biblical argument embedded in my heart. I am choosing to think like a Christian. And so I can turn down many claims to my time and my efforts that offer me some pleasure that actually run contrary to the Christian life because I trust in the argument of God's Word. And when there are other pleasures available that are God-honoring and can be pursued in a way that glorifies the Lord, I can, I have the freedom to enjoy them, but only ever under the overarching claim that the steadfast love of the Lord is better than life. I now understand these pleasures, these enjoyments, in light of the biblical argument. Now my heart is guarded against making these pleasures an idol. Now these pleasures will never rise up over above the place of the Lord in my life because I am choosing to think like a Christian. That is what it means to walk not as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds, but rather to walk like a Christian with a biblical mindset. Now, if we fail, there are consequences. And so Paul goes on in verse 19 to explain how thought leads to action. Verse 19, they, the Gentiles, have become callous. Notice there the perpetual nature of our minds leading to actions. The Gentiles, he said in verse 18, are responsible because of their hardness of heart. So their hardness of heart is what prompted their minds to be closed to the gospel, for them to pursue empty, vain thoughts, And in so much as they have pursued that kind of thought life, now, verse 19, they are callous. Thomas Goodwin, the Puritan, spoke of this perpetual relationship between thoughts and affections when he said our thoughts and affections are mutual causes of one another. Our thoughts, he said, are like the bellows that kindle and inflame our affections. And when our affections are inflamed, they cause our thoughts to boil over. So there is this reciprocal relationship that is ongoing between what we think and what we do. And the Gentiles, verse 19, have become callous and sure enough they have now given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But verse 20, Paul says, that is not the way that you learn Christ. Paul in verse 20 is beginning the counterpoint 
to verses 17 through 19. And Lord willing, we'll spend the next few weeks examining his argument as he speaks about the Christian mind. But I wanted to touch on it this evening by way of verse 20. That is not the way you learned Christ. Paul is talking here about their experience of coming to know Christ savingly, the point of their salvation, as it were. And so it's interesting that he would phrase it in this way. That is not the way that you learned Christ. It does fit exactly with the whole tone of the argument as Paul shows us the power of the mind and the responsibility that we as Christians have to honor God, to love God with our minds, it makes sense that he would speak about our experience of salvation as a learning. And certainly, however it is that you came to know Christ savingly, there was inherent to that an apprehension of the Lord Jesus. You don't come into a saving relationship of him without learning who he is. There was in some way a presentation of the gospel to you. There was some facet of Christ's glorious being presented to you and you apprehended it with your mind and you grasped hold of it and as you do, did so, your heart followed in faith and affection for Him. So every saving experience is indeed a learning of Christ. And what Paul will go on to say is that that, that learning must continue throughout your Christian life. That learning must continue throughout your Christian life. He says it elsewhere in 2 Corinthians, even more plainly, chapter 3, beholding the glory of the Lord. We all are transformed from one degree of glory into the next, into His likeness. We keep apprehending Jesus so as to become like Him. Which is to say, Christians take in Christ and meditate upon Him. It is our responsibility to do so. I don't know if you've noticed... Nine times out of ten, the application in my sermons is to simply think. The cat's out of the bag. If you hadn't recognized already, nine sermons out of ten as we get to quote-unquote application, what do I do in response to this text? I will tell you to think about it. To meditate upon the truths given to us in Scripture, not least, especially as we're working through the gospel in the morning, to think about your Savior. Because of the truth, it is as you think about Him that you are made more like Him. It is a mystical reality that God has designed that as we set our gaze upon Christ, we become like Him. And your mind will be changed to reflect more his mind. But understand it is a discipline. It's not something that comes naturally. The flesh still remains. We are, as a people, distracted. We are distracted. And our 
thoughts fly everywhere but Christ. And the scriptures would have us set our minds continuously upon him as a spiritual discipline. To every day set our minds to take in the wonder of the Lord Jesus. To deny the influences of unbiblical thoughts. To persist in our study of scripture certainly. To determine to submit everything that we then see to the logic of God's word. And above all to think about Christ. And as it's. It is that you set your mind upon him that your feet will follow. As you set your mind upon Christ, you will start to think more like him. And your life will be a more faithful representation of his. That is how you think like a Christian. Let's pray now to respond. Father, we give you thanks for your instruction to us tonight through Ephesians chapter 4. We're grateful for our minds, so powerful a tool that you have given to us, you've entrusted to us. Forgive us for where we have used our minds to dishonor you. Forgive us for unbiblical patterns of thought. Forgive us for those times when we have reasoned like an unbeliever. Father, I pray that we would take every thought captive to Christ. Teach us to think like Christians. May we, with the utmost diligence, exercise care of what it is we take in. We're not above the reality of influence. Father, would we be disciplined to study your word? Rigorous, intentional wrestling with the words of Scripture. Learning its arguments and making them our own so as to inform the way we live our lives. And above all things, would we be a people whose minds are stayed on the reality of Christ and His glory. Etch out in our hearts the discipline of meditating upon Jesus. That we would think like Him and live our lives in a way that puts him on display. That he would be honored, that we would know the joy that comes from obedience. We ask in his name. Amen.